This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book as a PDF. Through New Eyes Developing a Biblical View of the World James B. Jordan Copyright 1988 Published by Wolgamoth and Hyatt Brentwood, Tennessee 19. The Course of History As we come to the end of the study, let us step back and take a larger view of history. One thing that stands out is that each stage of history is more glorious than the previous one. There is definite growth and maturation in history, and though the wicked also grow and mature, their development is in the direction of degradation, not glorification. The Bible clearly shows a progression for the righteous and only a retrogression for the wicked. The Growth of the Kingdom in the Bible Before the flood, the whole world was corrupt, and there were only eight righteous souls to enter Noah's Ark. In the patriarchal era, the kingdom only existed by way of anticipation, since the patriarchs did not possess the land. They dug their water out of the ground. In the Mosaic era, the kingdom did hold the land, though with difficulty. A laver of water was positioned above the ground in the tabernacle, and the land drank its rain from heaven. Deuteronomy 11, verse 11. In the Davidic era, the internal enemies of Israel were subdued permanently, and the kingdom became much more glorious. A huge sea of water stood in the temple courtyard. In the Restoration, Israel began to bear witness to all the nations of the earth, and the kingdom began invisibly to spread and influence the world. A river flowed out of the temple. Finally, in the New Covenant, the kingdom was fully internationalized, and the fourfold river of Eden was restored, only this time flowing out of heaven itself. Such a vision of the growth and gradual influence of God's kingdom was once the common coin of Christendom. Though in the past century or so, it has become more common to expect evil to triumph. To be sure, the Bible does say that right before our Lord's return, the wicked will mount an assault on the holy city, Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10. This attack, however, is evidence of a decline, and so we ask, a decline from what? Obviously, a decline from an earlier period of kingdom prosperity. In numerous places, the Bible indicates the continued growth of Christ's kingdom at the expense of Satan's. For instance, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the course of empire, the kingdom of God strikes the statue of humanism. As Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar, You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel 2, verse 34 through 35. I believe on the basis of Exodus 20, verse 25, that the stone cut without hands is a reference to the altar. Remember, the altar is a holy mountain, and we have seen the altar grow and become bigger throughout the Old Testament history. The altar speaks of Jesus Christ, of course, but also of true worship. It is true worship that will undermine and destroy the kingdoms of this world. Notice, though, that the stone, or altar, grows until it fills the whole earth. It does not say that the altar simply coexists with the wicked world, nor does it say that the altar jumps instantly to fill the world. No, it says that the altar, or stone, gradually grows to fill the world. 
Along similar lines, we consider the river of Ezekiel 47. We remember that the first application of this passage is to the restoration establishment. But since the restoration covenant, like all covenants, is a type of the new covenant, we can legitimately make applications to the New Testament era as well. Notice then, that after the river begins trickling out of the temple, it grows deeper and wider as it goes. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. Ezekiel 47 verse 3 through 5. Again, this is not a picture of instant kingdom, but of gradual growth and development. Jesus said the same in his parables. Let us consider the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus makes it clear that the wicked will always coexist with the righteous in this world. Matthew 13 verse 24 through 30. But this parable does not say that they remain at equal strength. No, rather Jesus immediately tells the parable of the mustard seed, which says that the kingdom starts small, but gradually grows to become the largest of all garden trees, so that the birds, the nations of the world, rest supported by its branches. Matthew 13, verse 31-32 Jesus follows this up by comparing the kingdom of God to leaven, which gradually leavens a lump of dough. Verse 33 Thus, the Bible pictures the continuing growth of the kingdom after its establishment by Jesus Christ. Of course, the theologians have debated how far this will go, whether or not there will be a 1,000-year golden age and the like. It is not my purpose here to get into this question, but simply to make the point that the kingdom is growing from glory to glory. The Growth of the Kingdom in Church History Since we live in an age of setback, it is not always apparent to us that the kingdom has, in fact, grown. But, if we take a look at the kingdom in the year 300, we find it suffering in pre-Constantinian tribulation. A few centuries later, the church was wrestling with the tribes of northern Europe into the kingdom, while in the east, Christianity experienced a real golden age, and what we call Nestorian Christians had influence throughout India and China. A few centuries later, after the High Middle Ages and the Protestant Reformation, Christianity greatly discipled the European countries, spread to the Americas, and gave birth to the printing press, university education, technology, and many other benefits. During the last century, Christianity extended all over the globe as a result of the missionary movement and almost eradicated slavery, though slavery still exists in some Islamic countries and behind the Iron Curtain. The history of the church is not a history of smooth advances, however, from what we have seen of biblical history, we should expect periods of setback. We should expect that an old establishment wears thin and declines into stultification and error, only to be replaced by a new establishment that does fuller justice to the faith. Each new establishment takes up the strengths of the previous one, but transforms it into something new and more powerful, more glorious. For instance, after a couple of centuries of tribulation, God gave Constantine to the church. Constantine is much criticized by ignorant persons today, but there can be no doubt that his conversion was a welcome change for the thousands of maimed, crippled, and raped Christians of his day. 
The Constantinian establishment may not measure up by today's standards, but it was glorious in its time. It gave peace to the kingdom and enabled Christianity to blossom in the East, bringing the gospel to many peoples and bringing about tremendous blessings. In the West, the Constantinian establishment did not last. It was, after all, imperfect. After several centuries of strife and disorder, God brought to pass the papal establishment in the West. Protestants like me find it easy to find fault with the papacy, but we should remember that the firm hand of strong godly popes helped bring the unruly tribes of Europe into the kingdom. Just because the popes of Luther's day were bad does not mean they always had been. In their day, the tribes of Europe were in a state of continual warfare. By outlawing war during Lent on Sunday and at such times as the peace of God and the truce of God, the papacy eventually brought about a condition of continual peace. Wars were declared, fought, and ended. Peace was normal. The popes and godly emperors brought this about using the rod of excommunication. The papal establishment, however, was imperfect. It led to abuses, and the Christians of northern Europe did not like being dominated by Italians. So, God gave the Reformation. The Reformation functioned differently in various countries, but it did bring a new and better covenant. The Reformation brought freedom of the press, literacy, university education, and technology. But the Reformation establishments were imperfect also. They were too closely tied to the various nations and in the United States to separate denominations. The sense of true Catholicity in Christendom was lost. The growth of the kingdom in the future. So what is next? From our study of the Bible, we can say that when God is pleased to give us a new establishment, it will take out the best of all the previous ones, but it will transform them into something new. The future cannot be envisioned. For me, the period of Samuel is a close analogy to our present situation. In Samuel's day, the ark was located in kiriath Jerem, the tabernacle at Nob, and the high priest out in the field with David. An evil, demonized king was on the throne. I imagine that the priests of Kiriath Jerem insisted that the ark was the most important thing. I imagine that the priests at Nob emphasized the tabernacle and its importance. I imagine David's troops felt that the dynamic presence of the high priest and his ephod was the most important thing. Theologians of the day doubtless speculated on how to get all this back together, but they had no idea of what was really going to happen. The new establishment was something they could never have imagined. Compare our situation today. We have the discipleship wing of the charismatic movement, which is composed of devout, God-fearing people who pray and work for reform. Many of them think that the best thing would be if we all joined up with them. We also have the revival in Eastern Orthodoxy, signaled by the writings of Alexander Schmiemann. Of course, Orthodox theologians believe that we all need to pack up and join Orthodoxy. Then there is a strong revival in Reformational churches, centered on the profound thoughts of Cornelius Van Til. Many of these people go by the name Christian Reconstruction and wish that everyone else would join the Reconstructionist movement. As we continue our survey, we find the Neo-Puritan movement in Presbyterian and Baptist churches. These earnest people call us back to the best of our forefathers, but all too often think that this is all we need. Now, I don't want to leave anyone out, but I'm sure I will. Time will fail me if I tell of the revival of evangelical belief in Roman Catholicism, the renewal of psalm singing in mainline churches, the deepening theological endeavors of various parachurch organizations, and the like. 
I've been involved with many of these, and in each case, those with the ark think it is the most important. Those with the tabernacle think it is most important. And those with the ephod think it is most important. Christendom today is scattered. The future, though, cannot be envisioned. It is no good if we all join the Neo-Puritans or the Reconstructionists or the Renewed Orthodox or the Discipleship Charismatics. God has taken hold of Christendom and he has torn it apart. He intends to put it back together again in a new kingdom establishment. We cannot advance his timetable or presume upon his designs. What then? Our present duties remain the same as ever. The Christian is not called to play God and manipulate history, but to serve God in his calling. And this pulls us back to basics. Bible study, prayer, the sacraments, godly home life, public worship, faithful work on the job. For the pastor, that means that whatever camp we are in, our duties remain the same. Let worship be a true covenant renewal, with the rite of covenant renewal restored. Let us return to God's hymnal, the Psalter, as a foundation of our hymns, not excluding the other great hymns of the church. Let Bible study and biblical exposition be foremost in our teaching and preaching. In this way, we lay a foundation. We build up the saints. We prepare the way for the new establishment to come. Who knows just how wonderful it will be. This audio version of Through New Eyes by James B. Jordan has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Lucas Bell. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download the PDF of this book. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.